Welcome to episode four, season two of 1,000 Words, Stories on the Way. My name is Matthew Clark. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, first off, I want to say thanks so much to Mad Maggie, Lukey Luke, an avid Quo Rouser who left reviews on iTunes the last couple of weeks. Um, seriously, your words are so kind, and I really appreciate you, uh, you know, taking the time to actually say them. Uh, not only does that encourage me, but uh, somehow... I don't totally understand. This reviews cause the podcast to sort of bubble up to the top online, so it's easier for people to find it. So anyway, thanks again for those reviews. Uh, one or two things before we jump in. Uh, one thing is, you can follow me on Instagram. Search for Matthew Clark Net, uh, and you can visit my website at matthewclark.net. And uh, I would encourage you to sign up for my mailing list there. Once a month, I send out a little newsletter with, you know, you guessed it, news. Um, but that's a great way to keep up with what's happening on the singer-songwriter side of things, which is more kind of my main thing. Um, so sign up. I'd love to keep you up to date with music stuff. Um, second thing is that I write quarterly uh, for an online magazine called The Cultivating Project, and the new issue just released this past Saturday. And that includes an essay that I wrote along with some new poetry also. So check that out over at thecultivatingproject.com. Okay. Well, the last seven or eight years, um, I've spent a lot of time in counseling. Uh, It was really helpful. I was dealing with um, grief coming out of a season of trauma. And it was a slow process. really painful process of coming to terms with, well, first of all, kind of the hurt that other people can cause us. And then uh, maybe even more uncomfortably was dealing with the hurt that my own unhealthy patterns um, perpetuate. And I think that too often we offer simple, quick answers to problems that are really complex, slow problems. Um... And that happens inside and outside the church. And there are a billion voices offering all kinds of variations on peace. But in the end, I have found the most relief um, from Jesus and the scriptures. Um, This is a massive conversation, of course. But this week, um, I want to spend a little time looking at just kind of just one idea that's been helpful to me the last few years, and that is actual versus simulated atonement. And just quickly so you know, atonement is a word that was invented to function as a a kind of shorthand to refer to something like all the stuff the death and the resurrection of Jesus accomplished. And it's, um, it's three words stuck together at one meant at one minute atonement because Jesus's work uh, has put a lot of things that were broken back together again so um, that said let's dive in here is this week's episode entitled actual or simulated atonement Jacob he loved Rachel Rachel, she loved him, and Leah was just there for dramatic effect. 
Well, it's right there in the Bible, so it must not be a sin. But it sure does seem like an awful dirty trick. I remember listening to that Rich Mullins song and being confused by those last two lines until one day I heard the joke in them. The Bible is an often uncomfortable mirror to look into. It's not shy about showing us how hurtful humans can be. It's not shy about showing us how complicated the relationship between God and humanity really is. It's a roller coaster of a story, and it tells the whole truth. It tells the whole truth by representing the whole range of human feeling and action. In his song, Jacob and Two Women, when Rich Mullins sings, Well, it's right there in the Bible, so it must not be a sin. He's serving up a side of sarcasm in order to remind us that the scriptures are a relentlessly realistic depiction of the screwy, ridiculous, and downright evil things that humans do. In the midst of that upset of hot air, mixed motives, plain wickedness, and confused searching for God, comes God himself. The Holy One refuses to disengage. The Old Testament is consistent with the New, in that for God, this is a heartbreaking, exasperating endeavor. Jacob wrestles with God and will not let go till God blesses him. And likewise, God wrestles with his Israel through the world's long, hopeless night, wrestles till he is beaten to a pulp and hammered to a tree. And our wrestling partner just will not quit until we bless him. I've been watching Jesus move through his ministry in John's gospel lately. And the one thing that strikes me is that he's trying so, so hard to help his own people see him. He's constantly signing the signature of God in his miracles and words, doing works that only God could do. Several times he says that he must keep working while there's daylight, before it's too late. Just one more sign, one more rescue flare. Will anyone see its light arcing blood red above the city? He reaches out one more time in hope. But the problem turns out not to be a failure to recognize Jesus, but rather a refusal to acknowledge him. They know who he is. They will not bow. To glorify someone means something like to reveal the truth about their identity. Jesus is glorified again and again. The truth about who he is and where he came from is made available. The light did, in fact, come into the world. Jesus himself diagnoses the problem in a conversation with Nicodemus. In effect, he says that we've gotten used to darkness, and it's working pretty well for us. So well, in fact, that we prefer it to light. I can relate. Who hasn't got ways of dealing with life that we've put together to get us through? These are ways of coping that work well enough. I've started to think of these as simulated atonements. For instance, control works well enough, but what real thing is it simulating? Maybe trust and trustworthiness. 
Real trust is a bit much to ask. Hence, control. Or, blame brings a simulated relief, since we really do need to get our guilt off of us and onto someone else. We simply can't bear it. So, blame to the rescue. But the real things, responsibility, confession, repentance, apology, hard as they are, supply real relief that blame only simulates. Manipulation, which is another word for idolatry, works decently as a way to get us the things we feel that we need, but it bypasses the pains of mutual love and care, which are themselves the things we truly need. Illicit pleasure simulates the joy and beauty of intimacy long enough to keep us sedated, and so on. The thing is, all of the simulations have a grain of truth in them. You can't have a perversion without a version. We wouldn't keep coming back for seconds if the simulation weren't a little bit tasty. Nothing has any flavor without a little salt in it somewhere. So all evil has to borrow from good in order to have any appeal. And the simulated atonements do the same. As I've already mentioned, we really do need to get our sin and shame off of us and onto someone else. Blame parodies that for us. But blame is just simulating the reality that Jesus' crucifixion supplies. Jesus is our scapegoat. We have immensely complicated ways of maneuvering our sin and the pain it causes. And I have come to believe more and more that Jesus' death and resurrection are not nearly as simple of a response to our problem as we might at first think. It would be an interesting exercise to trace out all the ways that our coping strategies simulate the real gifts that Jesus makes available at the cross. I really believe that whatever it is Jesus accomplished at the cross is a mystery so inexhaustibly good that there is no evil or hurt that the power of his atonement fails to encompass and redeem. Still, it's hard to let go, hard to face Jesus, hard to allow my heart to go out to him, much as it aches to. I wrote a song once called Weapons that goes, It's my weapons that weigh me down. It's not the waves of sin that make me drown. It's my weapons that pin me to the ground. That song started while I was listening to Walt Wongren Jr.'s Bible retelling the Book of God. When he gets to the part where the Israelite slaves cross the Red Sea, he comments, that the reason the pursuing Egyptian army drowned was because of their sophisticated weaponry. The Israelites weren't loaded down. They were poor and unarmed. The Egyptians sunk to the sea floor from the weight of the complicated mechanisms of defense they had made for themselves. 
Last night, some friends and I sat around reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and he talks about how terrified the little tin soldier would be if he were suddenly told he'd be turned into something other than tin, something alien to him called flesh. If all you've known is skin made of tin, the prospect of being turned into flesh feels like losing yourself. And of course it is. For we must lose ourselves to find ourselves, Scripture says. If we try to save our lives, we'll lose them. All the things we construct to make us feel powerful, safe, even loved, become deadly when reality comes flooding in. I've learned from conversations in the counselor's office that over the course of our lives, we reach for certain coping tools to deal with whatever is overwhelming us. And it doesn't do much good to beat ourselves up for trying, even if the best we could manage at the time was to build a boat with a hole in it. In other words, I'm not writing this to you to pile guilt on top of the guilt that you, like all of us, try to but can't bear. We all do the best we can, until we find out there's something better. And here's the good news. These simulated atonements we fashion for ourselves aren't the only game in town. That means we have a choice. Because real peace with each other, ourselves, and God has been brought within reach. I built all kinds of boats for myself, and I have to keep frantically bailing them out as I sink. Meanwhile, God's own ark, Jesus himself, steps lightly upon the surface of the dark deeps. Our hearts are mistrustful from so much hurt, and we wonder, is it just a ghost of hope on the water? Some passing phantom of peace that will sink us if we go to it? Still, Jesus calls to us. It's really me. Step out of the boat and come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. close us out this week, I was thinking about how um, God has met us in these, these deepest and most complicated places of our woundedness, uh, places that are so painful and so confusing to us. And he doesn't just give us some, you know, gimmicky advice or weird positivity or even an intellectual argument. Um, he gives us himself. He goes right down to the deepest, worst place we can imagine and he just takes us into his arms. Like, I think of that um, image of, of Sam carrying Frodo, those last steps up Mount Doom. So I wanted to close here with a short paragraph that Paul wrote to his friends in Corinth. And I especially love that he reminds them that, like, yeah, lots of people are going to throw out all kinds of so-called wisdom at you. But in the end, the best thing ever is just to sort of flop over like a rag doll into the arms of the, the suffering Christ who loves you. And um, wherever you are or wherever you have been, Jesus will go there. Um, so here's Paul. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, 
I didn't come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony of God. I decided to be concerned about nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My conversation and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, because I didn't want your faith to be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. That was from 1 Corinthians 2. Um, That's all for this week. Subscribe, leave reviews, and share with your friends if you're enjoying the podcast. Um, Thanks so much for listening. I will see you next week.